Good morning. Hello, everybody. So I'm not actually going to start by asking you to raise your hands, but um, I'm guessing that if I did ask for a show of hands of who here started some kind of like devotional Bible reading plan in January, um, and then I asked for a show of hands of who's managed to keep it up so far, I guess we probably have two slightly, picture, slightly different pictures. Um, certainly would with me. Um, but um, a little while ago, John Wright recommended a book to our leadership team called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. Um, and the general, great little, not a new book, great little book, but the general premise of this book is that different people connect with God in different ways. And basically, he suggests that rather than trying and failing to repeatedly try and sustain some kind of devotional pattern that doesn't really click with you as a person, you're much more likely to find that regular rhythm if you explore how you connect best with God and then do that. And so he, he goes through these different types. He says, you know, some people connect with God best through withdrawing and practicing simplicity and solitude, others through tradition, tradition and ceremonies, um, others through their senses, through, through visual and audio stimuli. You might connect best with God when you're singing and worshipping. He calls those people enthusiasts. I could see a few enthusiasts in the room this morning. Um, or you might send God's, God's presence when you're actually doing his work. You know, if you're the kind of person who just loves to roll up your sleeves, get out on the arches van, deliver beds to people who'd otherwise be sleeping on floorboards. Others connect best with God when they're out in the nature. He calls those, he calls those naturalists. Not to be confused with naturists. <laughs> totally different thing. Be careful if you're Googling that one later. So one example of that is um, in another book by a guy called Robert uh, invitation to a Journey by a guy called Robert Mulholland. He talks about his time when a student came up to him and he had been doing this. He'd been repeatedly trying and failing to sort of practice this formulaic quiet time each morning that he'd been taught how to do, you know, where you sit down in silence, you read the Bible, you meditate, and he, it was, he just felt like it was pulling teeth. And so Robert asked him, well, what are some of the times when God's been truly alive for you? And he said, well, you know, I sense God's presence when I'm out in nature, when I'm walking in the woods and things like that. And so Robert suggested he develop a devotional practice that incorporated those activities into Bible, into his prayer. And he was surprised, you know, is that a legitimate devotional time? Can I do that? And he came back a few weeks later buzzing. It had transformed his relationship with God. Um, but that's not everybody. So a converse example of this would be um, the pioneer of the vineyard movement, John Wimber. His wife um, tells a story about how one day John decided that he was going to do this. He was going to head up into the mountains to fast and pray and seek the Lord for direction for the future. And Carol says that night about 10 o'clock, the phone rang and it was John. He said he couldn't find a room anywhere up in the mountains. And he'd driven back into the city and was eating a Big Mac. Slightly different. <laughs> John didn't, probably wasn't what, you, what, what Gary would describe as ascetic. Um, you know, one of the other pathways that's described in this book, people who love silence and solitude and strictness and austerity. But he found what worked for him. Um, Carol says that he used to talk out loud to Jesus as he went about his daily business, like a man talking to his friend. So that's the point, really, to find the pathway that works for you and shred it frequently. And the way the author, Gary, sets this challenge is by asking this question, which I want to focus on today. Where is your Gethsemane? Where is your Gethsemane? Now, Gethsemane, if you don't know, 
is a place that's mentioned in the Bible um, that was almost certainly an olive grove at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Um, Gethsemane means olive press. Um, it's just a, sh- a very short week from the city, ancient Jerusalem city. And many of us will recall that Gethsemane was the place where Jesus um, prayed um, before he was betrayed and arrested and executed. But in fact, each night during that final week, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, it explains how during, during that whole week, every day, Jesus would teach in the temple. And then it says each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And I'm just going to read the account of that, that last night that he spent there. In Luke chapter 22, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Gethsemane is the place that Jesus chose to be with his heavenly Father, and it was the place where he was strengthened, it says, as he prepared for the task that lay ahead of him that weekend. And today, I just want to highlight some things that Jesus models to us in this passage that I think characterize his relationship with the Father. So the first one is this, consistency. It starts by saying Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. I've already said he'd gone there every night that week. Now, most of us know that it's important to spend time with God regularly, don't we? And yet many of us, we find it difficult to keep the habit up because we live in a world where there are so many distractions, so many flashing lights, and we're so busy. You know, we're all, we're all busy people, aren't we? But if we're saying we're too busy to find, spend time regularly with God, in effect, we're, we're kind of saying that we, we, we feel that we're more busy than Jesus. Because Jesus had an absolutely grueling schedule. He had a massive job, three years on earth, to accomplish and inaugurate something that would change and ultimately save the world. But yet he still found time to carve out um, space to be with his father regularly. And the gospel writers, they make sure that we notice this. So for example, earlier in Luke's gospel, it says Jesus often withdrew to to lonely places and prayed. In Mark's gospel, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And in John's gospel, there was a time where the people were crowding around Jesus, wanting to kind of like make a fuss and make him their, their sort of king. And it says he, when that happened, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. We can make the mistake of thinking that if we, you know, spend time with God, that we carve out time for that, it will limit our capacity to get everything done in the day. We think we're too busy for this. But it turns out it's, it works the other way around. Um, the theologian um, Martin Luther is often quoted as saying, um, work, work, work. No, work, work, it says, from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. And I know what you're thinking. Bit of a lightweight, only three hours? What? (laughs) I suppose it's a start. But the point is that it's only through recentering, connecting with God, being strengthened by him, that we're able to respond to the demands of the life that he calls us to. Now, I know this idea of um, 
consistency is a bit of a marmite thing because some people love consistency. You're kind of routine people. Other people, not so much. My wife, Abby, she is consistent. She's a planner. Um, so every Saturday, she goes to the shops. She comes home. She gets um, this little whiteboard out and makes a diary of what we're going to eat each day, puts it on the fridge. That's how she rolls. She's a planner. And um, last year, I think we were on holiday, and she, with her devotional thing, she missed a day on her app that logs her devotional time, and it meant that her streak was reset to zero. And she was devastated. I was elated by <laughs> a little bit. Because others of us struggle. I, I did ask if that was okay to say that story. <laughs> others of us struggle with routine and patterns, don't we? Particularly when we're doing things that don't always seem immediately rewarding. Apparently in psychology, there's this um, language of delayed discounting. It's the, it's the idea that that we're more likely to choose things that offer immediate rewards, even if they're small rewards, over things that offer potentially far larger rewards but take longer time to get them. And that's why we, you know, we browse on our phone for ages, don't we, looking at just anything, rather than spending time reading something that's more worthwhile and meaningful, like a, like a, a decent novel. Or it's why we choose fast food over waiting for something that's more nutritious and takes more time to prepare. It's why we can sometimes spend a lot of time connecting superficially on social media rather than you know, the effort of actually meeting up with somebody and having some proper time in deep relationship. But of course, some of the best things in life, some of the most breathtaking things to behold in the world are things that are formed not in a moment, but over time, through incremental and sometimes imperceptible change. So, for example, have you ever, have you ever walked along the base of a valley and, and, and observed that, that the humble little brook trickling down the centre of it is the thing that carved these two mountains either side apart over, over the years, over the centuries? I think that's a beautiful picture of, of what a devotional life can do over time. Or similarly, um, you know, in Woolerton Park, there's, a, there's an oak tree that I'm told is centuries old. You might have seen, there, seen it. It's, it's amazing. And I, I challenge you to go and stand by that tree for as long as you like. You won't see it grow. Because what you're looking at there is the net result of, of maybe a quarter of a million days of imperceptible gradual change. And in the same way, I can't look at you and, you know, tell you whether you had a quiet time with God this morning. But there is no mistaking a person who spent decades regularly, consistently meeting with God. It's, it's majestic. It's something to behold. And there's no shortcut to that. There's no replacement for consistent time in his presence. So, consistency. Second thing, authenticity. Jesus says... Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now this prayer, Bible scholars will talk about this prayer till the cows come home because it's, it's simple, but it's extraordinary. Because in this prayer, you have God, Jesus, the Son, talking to God, the Father. And even though we understand that there is one God and he's always united in his will, Jesus' words in this prayer seem to somehow suggest some kind of like wrestling that's going on. And I personally, I, think it's, I don't think it's possible to really fully get our heads round and fully understand the depth of this prayer and what's going on in it. Um, but what is evident is that it's real, it's raw, and it's honest, isn't it? 
And I think that's the way that prayer should be. Um, I remember, um, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I grew up as a child in Catholic church, and that meant going to confession. And um, if you've never experienced it, you might have seen it in the films. Um, I remember the first time I was a little bit sort of nervous about going, and my big sister, she briefed me on how confession works. She was like, right, so you go in there, um, there's a little screen, the priest will be sat on the other side of the screen, you sit down in the chair, and what you want to do is you want to go in there and confess some basic sins. So, you know, you forgot to tidy your bedroom, you had a row with your sister, then he'll give you some penance, which is prayers that you pray to, to show that you're sorry, um, Hail Mary's, a couple of our fathers, and then bish, bash, bosh, you're out of there. She's like, under no circumstances are you to actually confess like all the stuff that you've actually done. <laughs> and so that was kind of how it worked until I go in there and the priest is actually sat in a chair and he says, do you want to sit the other side of the screen or would you rather sit so that we can see each other and have a conversation? I was like, oh yeah, let's do that. And he said, so do you know what this is all about? And I said, not really. And he said, you know, he explained to me what repentance is. He explained to me what sin is. He explained why we need to ask forgiveness. And um, But that through that prayer, Jesus would forgive us for anything that we'd done, even the worst things. And so I went big. <laughs> I, went, I went real. And it just so happened that I'd been involved in um, an incident at school that week, week which I'm, we haven't got time to go into it, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, I, I just went, laid it all out there. And I don't know if he was used to this because he looked a little bit shocked. And as, pre as predicted, the priest prescribed quite a number of our fathers, um, which took me quite a while to pray through to the extent where my mum began to get a bit worried. She was like, what did you do? Just <laughs> waiting for it. Now, this was a few years before I later, you know, learned what it really was to have a relationship with Jesus. But I think I did learn back then as a child that there is a difference between lip service prayers and honest prayers real ones. And the truth is, there's no point in being half-hearted with God, is there? There's just no point. No matter how embarrassing, how pathetic, how petty, how angry our prayers are, he knows it all, he sees it all, and he loves us anyway. And we always feel better after we've, after we've just done this, spent time being real with him. So, so be real, be real. And the third thing we notice in, in this passage is agency. Agency. Now, I wasn't really sure what to call this point, um, and so I probably need to explain. It's from this place of intimacy that, that, that with, with God that we are then sent out into action to be his agents, to do his will in the world around us. Um, and in this book, Gary, I'm just going to quote uh, Gary, he says, what I appreciate about using Gethsemane as a metaphor for meeting with God is that it portrays a vivid example of the balance between intimacy and mission, between prayer and work. I can't think of Gethsemane without being moved by the intimate communion between the Son and the Father, but on the other hand, this garden is also the scene of intense spiritual preparation for the most important work ever done. Mark and Matthew in their Gospels, you know, they highlight that Jesus had three times of prayer that evening, praying these words, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Gethsemane was the place that Jesus chose in his father's presence to prepare for the task that lay ahead. 
And what's interesting is that if you zoom out for a, mo for a moment, um, Gethsemane is an interesting place, or the Mount of Olives where Gethsemane was located, because it crops up elsewhere in Jesus' ministry. So, for example, it's the place where he begins his triumphal, triumphant entrance into Jerusalem on the donkey. It's the place where he speaks and prophesies in Mark's gospel. It's the place where, after his resurrection, he ascended um, to the place of power at the right hand of the Father, the ascension in Acts. And it's also the place where, in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah um, prophesies that the Messiah will return at the end of this age to set the world right and bring God's kingdom in full. And so the place of intimacy, do you see, is also a place of action. I think sometimes as Christians, we can think that intimacy and action is kind of like an either or thing. But even, you know, you have some Christians who are like intimate Christians, the prayerful types, devotional, holy people. And then you have your action Christians who, you know, want to roll up their sleeves and get out there and do the stuff, share the faith, serve the poor, fight for justice. I think it's a mistake to think that it's one or the other. Because whilst, yes, personality-wise, we might lean one way or the other, you need both to be a healthy disciple of Jesus. The place of intimacy is the place where actually we receive our marching orders. It's the place where we're empowered and inspired to go and do mighty things for him. Now, it is a challenge, juggling, busyness, action with intimacy and respite and calm. And, you know, what I find is encouraging is that even in Jesus' life, he had to balance that. He, that was a challenge for him. Um, so, for example, there was times when his busyness clashed headfirst into his devotional life. And he had to work it out that, for example, just after he'd heard that his cousin John the Baptist had been executed, Jesus was obviously distraught. He, he needed some time away with his father. And he was on his way to do that when the crowds saw him. And he was, you know, super popular at that time. And the crowds followed him and they chased him down. But when he saw them, rather than get frustrated at them, like gathering around him, it says that he had compassion on them. And he stops and he does what they want him to do. He heals their sick, he teaches them, and he miraculously feeds them. And Matthew in his gospel says, then after that, after he had dismissed them, then he went up on the mountainside to pray. I believe that it was the fact that Jesus spent time with his father consistently from that place of being sustained and nourished and strengthened day in, day out, that he had kind of like this reservoir of grace to be flexible in that moment, to have compassion on that crowd, delay his quiet time or postpone it and tend to their needs before his own. So don't think it's a sin to be busy. And also, this is not about being rigid. It's a bit like... Um, a person who consistently saves money, if you think about it, they're much more likely to be able to be spontaneously generous in the moment because they have a reservoir of funds in their bank account. In the same way, a person who regularly spends time in the Father's presence has a reservoir of God's love in their heart, and so they're much more likely to respond flexibly and graciously to the needs of others around them. So how do we do that? How do we invest in our own little reservoir for ourselves. Well, I just want to finish the last few minutes with some really practical stuff. Um, and to frame that, um, I, I love a quote that um, Pete Gregg, the founder of 24-7 Prayer, he often, he often says, the best advice I've ever received about how to pray was keep it simple, 
keep it real, keep it up. And he's talking about prayer there, but I think it it applies really to our whole devotional practice. Keep it simple, the first thing he says. Hopefully one of the things that's come across today is that, you know, different ones of us connect with God best in different ways. Um, And, you know, you might want to read a book like this to help you explore what works for you. But at the same time, I don't want to overcomplicate things. Really, it's about simply asking, when and where do you connect best with God and find that place and just do that regularly. Um, And so it has to be somewhere that you can go, you know, practically often. If you say, like, I connect God best when I'm in the Bahamas, it's like, that's probably not going to (laughs) work unless you're a billionaire. Um, But basically, go there. And there's two crucial ingredients, Bible and prayer. Simple as that. So if you connect God best when you're playing your Xbox, if that's possible, great. But you're going to have to find a way of incorporating the Bible and prayer into that. If it involves those two things and it works for you and it's legal, go for it. Personally, um, I find that if I just simply get a chair, sit down in silence and calmness, I find it really easy to connect with God for the first, like, 15 seconds at least (laughs) until I spot, like, a crack in the wall that needs filling and my mind is a bit restless. And I'm working on my restlessness and I'll touch on a couple of things that I found helpful with that. But like the stories at the start, I have found that it's helpful sometimes not to fight that and intentionally pursue God on a path that I find easier. So for me, I find getting out for a jog is a great way of occupying my restless body. If I get my body doing something, then my mind is free um, to connect with God and focus on prayer. And then I find that when I come back, I haven't got all that restless energy and I find it really easy to sit down then make a drink, and open my Bible up. Now, that's just me. Some of you are probably thinking, connecting with God and jogging at the same time, that sounds horrendous. And um, I'm not saying do what I do. I'm saying find what works for you. Do it consistently. Keep it simple. Keep it real. As I said earlier, authenticity is so important. Keeping it real is about being yourself, but it's also about praying honest prayers, being upfront with God, no pretending. And I've found one of the things that really helps with this, perhaps a lesson that I learned all those years ago as a child, is that difficult prayers, prayers of repentance, for example, I personally find often it's helpful to get them out. So rather than have them just like going round in my brain, round and round and round, I find it helpful to actually speak them out um, by either with, with, in a safe place with, with safe people or in a place where people can't hear me. So, by the way, if you ever see me cycling and you cycle up alongside me and you hear me muttering to myself, please don't be nosy because I'm probably doing some business with God. I find there's something powerful about speaking those things out. Um, And similarly, with our fears and our burdens and things that make us feel anxious, sometimes it can be really helpful to just write those things out to kind of get them out of you. It's a powerful thing to do. Another thing that can help us process real prayers Um, if you've never done this, is praying through the Psalms in the Bible. Because in there, you will find the full range of human emotions and experience, and often in words that we would, that are like more beautiful and more powerful than words that we could come up with on our own. So that's a great thing to do. Pray through the Psalms. So keep keep it simple, keep it real, and finally, keep it up. These days, there are some brilliant tools if you're a restless person that can help you with consistency. So, for example, um, the 24-7 
prayer website. It's got some brilliant tips in there. Um, nowadays, with our phones, technology, there are an abundance of devotional apps that you can do and audio Bibles. Um, and you can use them wherever you are, of course, whether you're at home or whether you're out on a trail somewhere. I would really recommend the Lectio 365 app. If you've not done that, it's brilliant. It provides a bit of, if you're a restless person, it provides a bit of structure and helps you slow down. And um, Abby and I, we often do that together in the morning, make, take it in turns to make a cup of tea and listen to that. Or there's um, an evening one that you can just fall asleep to. It's brilliant. And they've just also, Lectio 365, they just released one that you can do with your family. A family's one. If you've got young kids, it's really good. It takes you through this acronym P-R-A-Y each day. Um, and it's brilliant. The only thing that I would say is that they start by saying, first, we're going to pee. And you lose your kids <laughs> for about five minutes and you have to kind of get them back in. But apart from that, the Bible app on your phone is great. It's got lots of great devotionals. And if you're a person who struggles with screen distraction, I would really recommend um, a, just a devotional book. So here's some ones that I have found really helpful over. The, I've done these ones at different times. So um, there's one by John Stott, Through the Bible, Through the Year. Really simple. Um, another one, if you're like an activist person, Simon Gilbo, Choose Life. Um, sort of like a call to radical discipleship. And even the Bible in One Year, the HTB one, you can get it in a book form. Um, and there's another one I haven't got here called Meet the Bible. Um, Philip Yancey. I think it's out of print, but if you can get it, it's really good. If you want a great reader, reader, the audio Bible can be really helpful while you're out walking. So there's just a few practical tips. So that's my summary. Keep it simple. Find what works for you. Find your Gethsemane, the place you connect with God, and go there regularly. Keep it real. Be honest with God. Express what's really on your heart and keep it up. Truth is, the stuff that I've been talking about today is it's not going to change your life overnight. In fact, if you start today, you probably won't notice much difference in a week's time. But you will notice difference over the years. And the thing that I'm really talking about is like, what, is, what kind of person do you really want to be? What kind of person do you want to become? And it's only through doing these things, you know, that, that picture, the valley doesn't get formed overnight, does it? The oak tree doesn't grow in a day. This really is a lifelong work in progress, and we're all on that journey. But it's worth it. It's so worth it.